Namo Aitasa Bhagavatu Arhatu Asamasambhutasa Namo Aitasa Bhagavatu Arhatu Asamasambhutasa Namo Aitasa Bhagavatu Arhatu Asamasambhutasa Buddhang Damang Sangang Namasami So here we are. The topic that I was t- interested in talking about, which I'd like to start with and then see how it um, branches into these other ones, was the topic of emptiness. So, you know, emptiness is one of the challenging, central mm, components of the Buddhist teachings. You know, the, the, the doctrine of non-self is, is, is one of the most difficult to wrap our minds around. The doctrine of non-self and the doctrine of emptiness are related but slightly different. And one of the things that we have to recognize is is that there's two kinds of emptiness. They both sound like emptiness, but they actually are completely different. And one kind of emptiness is an emptiness that's devoid of warmth. It's a kind of a a vacuousness. It's a blankness. It's like a, a desert or a crevasse. It's like... It's like, um, and there's no warmth in it. It's like it's flat, it's gray, it's desolate. And this kind of emptiness, I think many of us know, and um, some of us have known very well. We've spent quite a bit of time there. And this is not at all the same kind of emptiness as the emptiness that's referred to when the Buddha talks about emptiness. This kind of emptiness is an emptiness that's um, filled with warmth and aliveness and attention and has a sense of being very powerfully connected to life and to all things. And it's my sense that the first kind of emptiness is often the driving force for addiction of all of its many-fold kind of expressions, drugs and sex and alcohol and work, and every kind of obsessive behavior is, is in some ways a response of not knowing how to deal with this first kind of emptiness, this kind of vacuous, blank, nondescript, kind of disconnected experience that one feels. And certainly, you know, to get a handle on this is actually not a simple thing. You know, it's not it's not small, it's not simple, it's not trivial. And I think there's a psychological component to that, you know, how we how that arises. I think there's a a cultural component to that. I think there's a a kind of a a group karma component to that. You know, there's a a kind of pressure on people now that just didn't used to be there in the same ways 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Collectively, everyone is having to navigate. You know, one of the things that happens or one of the ways that we can experience this vacuous emptiness is is that, you know, as, as little people, as children, when there were some ways in which 
um, our own experience wasn't validated or affirmed or mirrored, then that part that wasn't validated or affirmed somehow gets um, buried and um, or becomes something that's dangerous. And so that part of ourselves is not something that we have access to anymore. And if that happens a lot over a period of time, then there's large parts of ourselves that become unavailable to us or that become dangerous to us. And that the, the overriding experience is one of this kind of emptiness, this kind of sense of blankness. And so, you know, part of what I see is necessary is to understand the work that's involved in recognizing, you know, how this came to be, that this is actually not optimal living, and to develop the skills, the strategies, and the support systems to begin to start letting the prisoners out of the heart. What is it that needs accepting that got disowned or sidelined or repressed or disappeared? And so when we can understand that, then there gives a context for tremendous compassion about how addictive behaviors arise. You know? That most of the time, their response to this kind of emptiness, there is not yet the coping strategies to deal with it. There isn't the tools yet to deal with that. So the other kind of emptiness is not a vacuous, blank, numb, spaced out, disconnected blur. It's alive. It's warm. It's connected. It's intimate. It's present. And in that emptiness, there's no fixed, unchanging person or self or anything that you can find. But it's alive. It's moving. And so for me, the, 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 the ability to touch what is happening in the one gives the possibility for realizing the other. It's not like you have to get rid of one. You have to embrace, understand, know, enter into that territory to feel what needs to be felt through in order to realize there isn't a non-changing entity that's experiencing this vacuous, empty, cold, desolate experience. There is work to do to integrate, but it is not owned by a person that doesn't change. So in our life, you know, we have choices and the different choices that we make have a huge impact on the kinds of things that happen. And some of the choices that we make take away our choices. And too much drugs in a person's system and a person no longer has choice. And so when you are navigating the death of a friend who's just gone this route, where they've made a choice that's taken away their choice, there's the natural feeling of loss and grief and sadness, the tragedy of that. And there's also the bigger context of holding this in a picture where it makes sense 
You know, when a person is dealing with a kind of vacuous emptiness and not having the resources to navigate that, they do what they feel is best, which is to just ameliorate the pain. And so I think, you know, one of the greatest ways that a person who has died through overdose can be for a community is to take courage to do the work that it doesn't happen again. Whatever level of sobriety one's at or wherever one is with one's addictive patterns, to recognize that when you are not able to touch the emptiness, that this sometimes is the result. And to give one the courage to say, I don't want to go this way. And what do I need to do so that I don't? And how can we as a community support each other so that collectively we don't? And how can we kick each other's butts when somebody's forgetting? How can we pull somebody by the ear and say, are you really sure that you want to go to hell? So when a person dies, it's an opportunity to grieve. It's an opportunity to take stock, to take inventory. And it's an opportunity to say, I don't want to do that again. And what do I need to do to make sure that I don't do that again? In whatever which ways we get lost in our own addictive patternings, no matter what they are, you know? Because we cannot face the emptiness that the addictive patterning is a strategy to ameliorate. If the death of a human being ends up being the force that causes a community to wake up, it is an incredible blessing and needs to be honored as such. And so it is the question of the community's response as to whether this tragedy is transformed. So naturally, in the course of all of these kinds of reflections, there's going to be plenty of emotion. And the emotion needs to be handled, received, felt, allowed, and yet not wallowed in. So there's a difference between allowing grief and wallowing in grief. And the difference is is, is that allowing grief, grief is moving through the whole of one's body, heart, and mind, but one is not identified with it, dissolved into it, absorbed into it, attached to it. It is present. It is speaking. It is moving. You feel it. But it is not the essence of who you are. It's what you're experiencing. Wallowing is to loop in thoughts, to identify, to absorb. And so rather than it being something that releases, it's something that perpetuates. And that one forms an identity, I am grieving. That is who I am. That is what I am. And that is what I am doing rather than recognizing I'm in a process that needs honoring, support, protection, and space. 
Now everyone is different in their own way that they relate to their own emotions. Each of us has our own habits and patterns and tricks and strategies and things that we work with well and things that we don't work with well. In my own experience, it was really surprising to me to know how much of my own emotional world was not available to me, was cut off. I had ideas about how things were supposed to be or how I was supposed to be or who I was, and it actually was not connected to reality. And so it was quite sobering to come into contact with that. And what I noticed was is, is that before I had done the work to excavate some of these layers that I didn't have access to, I experienced emotions like avalanches. You know, it wasn't like I had a little bit of a feeling. It was like I was totally inundated with it. Even my hair would be feeling it, you know. It was like, you know, or a, a tsunami or something. They were like huge things. And part of that was because there was such a lot of, 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 of compression that when this stuff would actually emerge to the surface, there was so much pressure behind it that it would completely overwhelm everything else that was going on. So that for me, it took an excavation process to get more current with the different layers of what was actually operating so that I didn't wait for a tsunami or for an avalanche. I could feel it as it was beginning to speak and bubble. And then for me, the body ended up being a tremendously powerful tool to begin to feel and differentiate what was emerging that needed to be received. And the body doesn't need to have language of, you know, this is a this or a that. You know, it doesn't need to, to label it. But to be able to interpret the signals in the body then gave me much more resource and capacity for dealing with the subtleties and the differences of what was happening. And as well as, you know, for me, there would be times where certain kinds of emotions would knock me into regressed states. So I wasn't dealing with the person of an age that I was. I was dealing with the person of an age of little you know, one or two or three or six months or, you know, 12. And, you know, the rational mind is like, it's not happening. That's not possible, you know. But the reality is that is exactly what's happening. And the quicker that I switch on to that and relate to that with an age-appropriate response, then the faster everything shifts and comes to normalcy and ease. You know, a two-year-old cannot rationalize what's going on. But they can sing songs, you know. So when I became more responsive to my own internal emotional reality and time appropriate, then I took much, much, much less time to work out what was going on and to have it come to a place where the wisdom component could respond to whatever was there. Until I could do that, it was like, you know, days or weeks or whatever for something to sort itself out until I got a handle on it. Because there was like, I accept you, but I don't accept you. I accept you, but it has to be on my terms. And my terms are that you look like this and you speak like this and you relate like this. And it's like, you know, but that wasn't what was happening. 
So when I was able to say, well, what's happening? And just respond to it like that. Then in like much shorter time, the whole thing could come up and I could be clear about what was needed, respond to it with what was needed, and it would shift. And so for me, part of those regress states of mind had to do with giving permission to feel the things that were disallowed in my early conditioning. So things like sadness for me were disallowed. Anger was disallowed. So I would go into a regress state around stuff like that. And then I needed to give special permission to be able to allow those feelings into conscious awareness so that I could process them. And then as I could do that, then I wouldn't feel flooded and overwhelmed and inundated with it. You know, I grew up and, you know, people told me from the time I was little I was smart. And so in the family situation, the cultural situation that I was growing up in, I very strongly identified with my intellect as, you know, that was the thing that was going to do it for me and that was the thing where I was going to get the praise from. But the reality is, is, is that my feelings are like much, much more powerful, you know. And so I was letting my rational process dominate my feeling world and it wasn't doing a very good job. When I got aware of the level of sensitivity that I actually had and honored it, rather than said that it shouldn't be there, you know, or it's too girly, you know, feel things, then I could let the heart and the feeling world take the place that it needed to, and then my intellect then acted in role of service rather than as leader. And for me, that's the way I work best is where my heart and my intuition leads and my intellect serves, you know. But it was no small project to recognize what I had done and to learn to trust the feeling levels and allow them their voice and their passion and their strength and their all-over-the-placeness until they could find their own level. And the more I was congruent with that, then the less they were all over the place. And the more they just had things to say that needed to be heard. So I was split from my own internal feeling level. And that was part of the reason why the feelings for me were such a project. You know, it was like international news if I felt something, you know, because it was so big. So letting the body be the basis, letting the body be the anchor, letting the body be the place where one feels things then gave me more capacity to navigate, you know, what was true for me and find languaging or interpret what was going on in a way that I could make sense out of it. There was less struggle. Now, still, I feel things. I feel things strongly and it can last for a while. But it doesn't get kind of socked in in the same way that it used to. And the result is is just that I feel much brighter. And I occupy much less of this blank, vacuous, empty, no warmth, no connection, no intimacy, no ground. And much more a sense of vital, alive, connected and intimate with all, with every, with myself, resting in my own skin. So the way of a contemplative is to go into that emptiness and sit there, feel it, taste it, know it, speak to it, look at it, allow it, embrace it, and let the light of knowing be 
that which transformed this vacuous, cold, desolate world into something which is vital and alive and rich and connected. And the contemporary world stuffs it with food and drink and sex and power and money and entertainment and movies and internet and Facebook and drugs, alcohol. So we get to choose, you know. What do we want to do? How do we want to live? What's important to us? What kind of choices do we want to make? Expectations is curious, you know, because we all have them. And some are healthy, some are unrealistic, some are totally idealistic. And uh, how do we relate to expectations? Well, I think the way we relate to anything really is to know that it's there and to know how we're relating to it. So, you know, expectations come, but, you know, check out and see how invested you are in them. Is this driving this show? Or is this a small voice in the background? What happens when the expectations are not fulfilled? Are you devastated? Are you mildly disappointed? You think, well, that what happens when you have expectations. That's cause and effect. When you attach to expectations and they're not fulfilled, then there's disappointment. That's nature. Now, one of the places that we need to be really careful is about expectations that we have of ourselves. Because the list is usually endless and absolutely, totally unrealistic you know, about who we're supposed to be, when we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to do. So one of the occupational hazards of being a nun is just that the expectations that we have ourselves are often totally unrealistic. I'm supposed to be wise and loving and kind and supportive and available to everybody under all circumstances no matter what (laughs) that's the short list (laughs) but the reality is is that I am what I am and I do what I do and I have my own needs and I have to navigate my own needs alongside what it is that I need to do and be available for others and I need to do it with a certain amount of grace and skill and wisdom and honesty and integrity and and call out when I'm struggling, you know. So one of the lessons that all of us have to learn is how to ask for help. How to create a supportive network that we can go to and fall apart in the middle of. So one of the lessons that we learned in the monastery was what would happen to the abbots you know, because they had this persona of being wise and kind and loving and available and smart and on top of it. And in their inner life was a chaos. And the more they projected this outer image of that as who they were, then the more there was this gulf about what was actually happening until things got to crisis proportions and they couldn't traverse the gulf any longer. And so after we went through a couple of really tragic circumstances with senior members of the community. The community learned how to support everyone to fall apart. Everyone had the right to fall apart, to support them to do that, to protect them to do that, to honor that. 
to give them space for that, to help them see that, and to know that that was absolutely part of practice. There was nothing about that that needed to be feel bad about. And these are people who had been meditating for decades. They'd been teaching meditation for decades. They still needed the ability to fall apart because they hadn't yet opened up to the first kind of emptiness in all of the places that that had taken a foothold in their lives. And sometimes it takes 20 years of meditation practice before you have the capacity to open up to some of that stuff. Sometimes you need to be held in loving arms for a long time before you have the courage to open up to some of the grief that you have. Nothing is wrong about that. That's nature. But it takes a quite a mature partnership if loving one is what evokes that kind of grief to be able to handle the grief in a way that supports the partnership. And one person doesn't wig out because it's too much, because it activates all of their issues. And then we have Occupy. So here we have a social movement that is started as a response to people saying, Basically, what's happening sucks, and I want to do something about it, and I have no idea exactly what that looks like, but I'm tired of just sitting around complaining, you know? So let's gather together, and let's see what happens when we gather together, and let's see if through gathering together we can make some movement towards addressing some of the social situations that we're dealing with that just don't make any sense at all. You know, the foreclosures on the banks, the political situation, the economics, the number of people who are unemployed. I mean, the list is really long. But if a movement is not grounded in clarity, in vision, in leadership, you know, what happens? There's a lot of stuff of people coming together, and it's lovely that there's no kind of hierarchy of administrative structure but there isn't something that's holding people together to hold the vision together, then the energy is not focused. So you have a tremendous amount of potential. Tremendous amount of potential. And what's needed is for it to ground, solidify, become coherent, focused, streamlined. Then it can move. And I think each person has their own sense of how they can contribute to that in terms of being present in their own bodies and focused in their own intention and clear in the way they relate to each other and see if through that leadership emerges that helps support, vision emerges that helps support, people consolidate in a way that helps support. Tremendous potential. And very important when people are no longer feeling complacent or feeling like they can't do anything, they don't have any more options, they don't have any more choice. That's a red flag when you feel that. You feel boxed in and you don't have any choice. That's when you give away your power. So this is not giving away power. Occupy is not giving away power. It's standing in power. And that's really important. So Occupy is dealing with the social kind of emptiness, 
where it feels like, you know, on a societal level, we're going nowhere fast, we're going to hell quickly, you know. And is there any way of navigating that or making different choices or coming up with things? You know, my sense is the kind of problems that we're dealing with require the leaders of the different areas to come together and find ways to work it through. You know, it's not just about the bankers. It's about everybody who's affected. And to come up with ways that, you know, things can move forward is going to require the, the recognition that, 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 that this is important and, and the appreciation that that might be a way forward to do it. You know, to get the leaders together to talk and to be committed to a process of resolving something, not just to meet, but to stay with it. You know, because the stuff that we're dealing with in our society is bigger than one faction of the society can sort out. And so each of us in our own meditation practice can hold open the possibility that we can we can stay present for what we know and feel and open to people who differ in their opinion and stay connected through our through our humanity and stay with it until something emerges and that as meditators we can bring to occupy that understanding that appreciation that willingness so enough of me Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.